Father in heaven, we thank you for today. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that we are forgiven. Lord, it's... We ask that you would press us with your spirit this morning. Weigh us down so that we would turn to you and you alone. It's in your precious son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Like I said, Psalm 32 this morning. Psalm 32 is a, a mascal of David. Uh, Maskell is, <clears throat> without without the that 100% confidence, Maskell, of David, Maskell is a, a teaching psalm. Uh, one of the most amazing things about the human brain is that we have, we have different things that are going on in our brains. Our brains work in mysterious ways. Not really mysterious ways, but in crazy ways. Um, and, and music is one of the, the last things for those people who suffer from dementia and Alzheimer's, it's one of the last things that gets uh, gets taken away. And in fact, a lot of people who have who lose their motor skills and, and the ability to speak normally and, and things of that nature as they go through the process of of dementia and, and, and the like uh, will will still be able to sing songs that they can remember from their youth and sing them uh, almost almost as if they have no uh, nothing going on, which is which is quite quite amazing. And I think that's one of the reasons why. We have psalms in the, in the Bible that are specifically for for teaching and instructing us, and so that's that's what today's uh, psalm is. Uh, today is a fifth Sunday, uh, and and so we're kind of dual purposing it today. Uh, since Wes is gone for the last time for a while, by the way, you've you've done a great job um, helping Adam and I uh, sing, uh, but because of that, and because we're going through Lent, I decided. Let's just kind of kind of share this time. So this is a this is a very um, Lenten uh, psalm that we're going to be looking at this morning. Let's look at us, read it, and and dive into it. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place to me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. 
I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed by a bit or bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Again, Spirit, we ask that your presence would be known, that our hearts and minds would be softened to hear your word. It's in, your son, it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. So, like I said, this is a psalm of teaching. And I point that out because it doesn't necessarily seem like a psalm of teaching. Meaning every verse doesn't necessarily lend itself to teaching. I think really it's only verse 6 where David, our author here, commends us to do similar to what he has done. Psalm 32 is often paired with Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is, in, at least in, in my opinion, one of David's most passionate psalms. Psalm 51 comes, uh, David writes, uh, in response to his sinful nature manifest in the time of his sins against God uh, through his adultery with Bathsheba and his sins against Uriah and taking his life. I'm going to give you a, just a brief overview of this story just in case you don't know it. Uh, David, who was uh, king over Israel, is the second king of Israel. He's, he's a man after God's own heart by, by God's description. He makes uh, a lot of mistakes in his life, but probably the one that really resounds uh, loudest is uh, the story of David and Bathsheba. And David is, like I said, king, and uh, it came time for war, and, and this particular time uh, of the year was when the kings typically went out and uh, made made war with, with their soldiers. And David, uh, starting to get a little bit arrogant, and he stayed back, uh, and he was standing on the roof of his house, and in the ancient world at this point, the uh, roofs of houses were were flat, and it was... Uh, sort of like your courtyard. And so David, he's standing up on the top of the palace, he's standing on this flat roof, and he's looking out and he's looking at all these other houses and he catches the uh, the vision of Bathsheba who is bathing. Right. And, and most of us know that the proper response at this point would be to avert your eyes, flee the situation. But David, he doesn't. He sits at the top of the roof and he watches and he lusts. It's creepy is what it is. He lusts and he eventually he sends for Bathsheba, who, by the way, is married and her husband Uriah is one of the men in David's army and a man who David undoubtedly knows personally because they live very close together. He is in his army and the way he interacts with him in a minute. David brings Bathsheba into his home. He lies with her and gets her pregnant. 
And David tries to cover it up. He says, well, uh uh-oh, this isn't good. And so he sends for Uriah, who is fighting a battle for David. And he says, come on home. And he pretends like he's just curious about how the battle's going. How, is this, how's, how are things going? And Uriah's like, oh, they're, going, they're going well. They're going okay. And, he's, and he says, okay, that's good. That's, I'm glad that I got that news. Why don't you go home and be with your wife? Uriah shows David up a little bit. He says, I couldn't possibly be with my wife because all of my comrades are out at war and they're not allowed to be with their wife. And so he sleeps on the, on the steps of the palace instead of with his wife. And David's like, ah, oh, this isn't going to do. Nobody's going to be tricked into thinking it was Uriah who got Bathsheba pregnant. So instead of confessing his sins, asking for forgiveness, instead he tries to cover it up even more. And he sends Uriah out and he gets, sends this messenger, says, take Uriah, put him in the front lines, the heat of the battle, and then retreat without telling him. He'll be left all by himself, and he will inevitably be killed. And this is exactly what happens. And David goes, okay, I think this has worked. He takes Bathsheba to be his wife, and nobody is the wiser except for God. God knows what has happened, and he confronts David with the prophet Nathaniel. Tells him this story about a rich man and a poor man and a lamb, and he takes the lamb, and David is furiously mad. Kill that man, and and Nathaniel's like, no, this is you. smacked him in the face with his own sin. A sin that he thought he could hide from, a sin that he thought he was okay in committing. He just kind of tried to bury it. And then we have his response, his his pleading to his God for mercy and for forgiveness. This is what Psalm 51 is. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll just just hit some highlights. Verse 1, he says, I have, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Jump, jump forward to the, towards the end. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness. O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my, my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Now, David is not without consequence. He is forgiven by the Lord, but he is not without consequence consequence and the death of this child and but the reality is is that David feels this sense of forgiveness he felt heavily the weight of his sin in his transgression against the Lord and and in his confession of this he knows that God is not a god of vindictive justice, but as a God of mercy and salvation. And so I think, and most most people think that David follows up Psalm 51 with Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man who, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. There's a couple of things that are happening in these two short verses. First, it's a uh, beatitude, right? We know the beatitudes in the New Testament. Jesus blesses the poor in spirit, and so on and so forth. This is not a this is not a giving of a blessing. It is a recognition 
of a blessing. Now sometimes we see the giving of a blessing. Abraham blesses his son Isaac. Isaac blesses his son Jacob. There's a, a passing on of a, of a blessing, a possession of, of God's presence and his, his goodness towards us. It's a passing on. This is not a passing on, a giving. This is a recognition of a blessing. Now many of us confuse blessing with monetary prosperity. Because many times in the Old Testament, we see a person being blessed and then subsequently having lots of stuff. Abraham is blessed by God and he's ridiculously filthy rich. Isaac is blessed by God and he's ridiculously filthy rich. And Jacob the same. This is not what the biblical picture of blessing is. It's like saying that my thumb is a finger, but not all of my fingers are thumbs. A monetary blessing is always a blessing from God. A mon if I have possessions and wealth, you living in the United States, it's a blessing from God because we have things. It's God being good to us, but not all blessings are monetary. They're not money. I think the best way to describe what a blessing is, is the presence of God or the, the desired manifest uh, life that God has for us. When we are in the presence of God, walking in the ways of God, we are blessed by His design. This is also what gives those people who suffer greatly the ability to still have joy in their lives. People who have lost uh, wives or husbands or children and there's devastating grief, but yet there's still a sense of of joy because God is still present. This is blessing. David says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. The other thing that's happening here is David uses three of the six words that the Old Testament uses to describe sin or to describe our rebellion against God. Or turning away from his plans and his purposes. He uses transgression. He uses the word that we would most readily translate as sin. And he uses the word iniquity. And while all of these words are very similar in their, in their description. Very similar in what they mean. They all have subtle nuances. A transgression is a rebellion. A rebellion. And in order to be rebellious, you have to make a choice. Now, transgression is most often uh, used whenever we see God's authority, God's authority over, over life and the way life should work. And, and, and a transgression is when I see it and I choose to go against it. So Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, when they eat of the fruit, God says, I have the right to decide what you can and cannot eat. I am God. I am creator. You should not eat. You can have everything else, but not this. And Eve goes, I see your authority, and I'm going to go around it. It's rebellion. Now, all of us rebel against God's ways and, and rules and in so many different ways. We transgress the Lord. Sin, the next one. Sin is missing the mark. This is most, most of the time probably how we describe sin. We miss the mark. This is not necessarily purpose, volitional sin. It's not 
deciding to sin. Rebellion is deciding to rebel, or transgression is deciding to rebel. But missing the mark is, is just our inability as broken and sinful beings to be perfect as God calls us to be perfect. Jesus in the New Testament, I think, he expresses this on the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I tell you, if you hate your brother in, in your heart, you have committed murder. Or, or you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that if you look at a, a woman with lustful intent, you have committed adultery already. This isn't necessarily volitional deciding to hate, deciding to lust. This is the magnitude of God's perfection, is that we are incapable as broken people to achieve his perfect world. Men are very visually driven. And so we go to the beach and there's a woman in a bikini and there's this immediate gut reaction that's built into us, it seems. It's not about sitting and dwelling on the beauty or the attraction that we have just felt. It's that immediate, and I hope for many men, that's, very quickly averted, but the idea here is that it's almost impossible for us to go through life without sinning because God's ways are so above ours. God's plans are so beyond our ability. We will ultimately always fall short of perfection. The last one is iniquity, and I think iniquity is the, is the most complete term. Iniquity is waywardness. Iniquity is not, it's not I see in a moment authority and I rebel against. It's not missing the mark. It's, it's the decided path that we have found ourselves on. As so we know that God's path is this, and we have rebelled against him, and we have sinned and missed the mark, and, 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 and we are now on a different path, a, a path that seems better for us. I think David uses all three of these terms because he has felt all three of these things hit him hard. And I think many of us, many of us feel these three terms. And I think if we don't, we should examine ourselves. We are sinful beings. I, I think that you wouldn't be here at Christ Church if you didn't believe that to be true. If you thought you were okay, if you thought you were righteous and perfect, then you wouldn't come to church because the, the whole purpose of church is to, is to praise and honor the, the God who has redeemed us and saved us and rescued us from the fact that we are broken and sinful. We know that we are sinners. But David here, he knows something even Deeper, he knows that there is another truth to the word of God, through the scriptures that we're studying. He says, look, in every way that we have sinned, we've transgressed, we've sinned, we're iniquitous. He's got a counter word. And like he gives us three words for sin, he gives us three words for salvation. He says, your transgressions are forgiven. They're forgotten. They're removed from your account. Your sins are covered, are paid for, are completed. 
And for David, this was through the worship of God in the temple, making sacrifices, the day of atonement. For us as Christians, it's the blood of Jesus that covers what we have done wrong. It has been removed from us and placed upon Jesus who has paid the debt. And the last one is the Lord counts no iniquity. In Hebrew, it's actually not counts. doesn't make sense in English. It's one word. It's the negation of counts. It is no longer put upon our record. It's removed from us. It's paid for by Christ. And it is no longer put back on our list. Even as we continue to walk wayward. This is really what brings us joy. I would say that this is probably the the most basic definition of the blessing that God has poured out upon us. That we who were once sin have have been redeemed by the work of God in Christ Jesus. It is truly amazing. But David goes on here. This is... This is fantastic, but David, is, he's, he's going to share with us something that I think is profoundly important. He says, in whose spirit there is no deceit. In whose spirit there is no deceit. Does he mean that, there, that, that these blessings come only to the person who stops lying? If we turn ahead to John, I think John gives us a very similar sentiment. John, 1 John Chapter 1, verse 8. You don't have to turn there if you don't want. He says, he says, if we say we have no sin, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Martin Luther, the reformer, many of you maybe have heard this quote from him. It says, uh, be a sinner. Sometimes you hear it, sin boldly. This comes from a letter he wrote and. And I'm not going to read the whole letter, but he goes on. He says, be a sinner and let your sins be strong. Sin boldly. But let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ, who is the victor over sin and death in the world. And this is where we stop, usually. But he goes on and he clarifies what he's trying to say. He says, will you commit sins while you or we will commit sins while we are here? For this life is not a place where justice resides. We, however, says Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where justice will reign. It suffices that through God's glory we have recognized the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. No sin can separate us from Him, even if we were to kill and commit adultery thousands of times each day. Do you think that such an exalted lamb paid merely a small price with a meager sacrifice for our sins? Pray hard, and this is my favorite part, pray hard for you are quite a sinner. What he's saying here, I think, is exactly what what David is saying. He says, listen, don't deceive yourselves. Don't deceive anybody else. You are sinners. And the beauty of the, the beauty of the story of redemption is that God already knows that you are a sinner. It's exactly why He has sent His Son to shed His blood on the cross. 
And David, he thought, I'm, yes, I'm a sinner, but I'm supposed to be this man of God's own heart, so I will hide my adultery with Bathsheba. I will hide my murder of Uriah. Instead, God says, you can't hide your sin from me. I already know it. Verse 3 says, For I kept silent, and my bones wasted away through, the, through my groaning all day long. Tried to hide it. He says, For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up. It's by the heat of the summer. It's just conviction of sin. If you are convicted for the sinfulness in your life, do not feel that you are you are unworthy of, of God's sacrifice because the conviction that you feel is, is actually God trying to get your attention. Sin boldly, but be yet more bold in your trust of Christ. David, in verse 5, he continues. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. He says, I did not cover my iniquity. I didn't try to fix it. I, yes, I did at first, but I, I changed my heart. I changed my ways. I, I confessed my sin. He says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, for you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It's all Christ's work. It's all God's work for us as Christians through Christ Jesus. Jesus tells us in the New Testament, I've quoted this a couple of times, Tells us in the New Testament, he tells the Pharisees, I did not come to save those who are or who are well. I came to save those who are sick. And it's not because he didn't believe that the Pharisees were sinners. He knew all too well that the Pharisees were sinners. He says, no, it's about your need for me. And if you don't think you need me, I can't save you. Cast yourself upon me, Christ tells us. This is exactly what David tells us in verse 6. This is why this is a teaching psalm. He says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. And surely in the, in the rush of great waters, you shall not reach him. They shall not reach him. He says, he says, when you cast yourself upon God, when you cast yourself upon God, the, the, the great rush of water cannot reach you. The, the rush of death cannot touch you. This is the promise of Scripture. When you cast yourself upon the Lord Jesus, you cast yourself upon, upon the foot of the cross to, to receive the blood of Jesus Christ, you are totally and completely forgiven and covered. He pleads with us. I think. David says something very interesting. I think he's, he's showing us something interesting. He recognizes that he is a sinner. And he, he recognizes that sin was, was wrong and it was a transgression against the Lord. He recognizes that. And, and, and he, goes, he goes, okay, I could do two things. I could, I could hide it and pretend like I wasn't a sinner. Or I could, I could proclaim the fact that I'm a sinner. But I am saved. And so I'm not going to hide from my from my sinful nature. I'm going to proclaim it to you so that you can, as sinners also, can recognize and know that you are also forgiven. If only you would cast yourself upon God. But notice the same sentiment here that was in our passage last week. David says, 
offer prayer at a time when you may be found. Fellow sinners, there is a time. There is a time in this life when it is no longer open for us. That time will come either at the end of your life or at some point in the middle of between now and and then. For Herod, it came early on in his life. And this is why we seem to see Jesus with such contempt against him. Pharaoh, we, we, get, the, we get the story of Pharaoh in the book of, of Romans when, when, when Paul tells us about how, how God hardens his heart and he used him to glorify his own name. Herod, Pharaoh seemed to be distant from God before his death. So I will say the same thing. As I have said the last few weeks, listen, do not wait until tomorrow because tomorrow just might not come. Turn to the Lord and cast yourself upon him because it is not a, it's not a little thing. It is, it is monstrous and, and humongous. And, and Christ tells us that we, when we cast ourselves upon him, we are hidden in him, he says in verse 7. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Cast yourself upon God. He knows you are a sinner. And I think he also knows that you will continue in sin. And he also knows that no matter how much you think this should be the case, you will never be perfect before him. David speaks, seems to speak for God in verse 8. He says, I, God, I think is speaking. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you, God says. I will counsel you with my eyes upon you. Right? Sometimes we think that we have to make, make ourselves look right before we can enter into the salvation work of Christ. Absolutely not. In fact, it's the opposite. You can't enter into the Work of sanctification until you have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. You will never become perfect before Jesus. But the promise is is that once you cast yourself upon Christ, God himself will walk with you. The Spirit of God will dwell in you and walk and change and transform us. He says, be not like A horse or a mule without any understanding. An untrained horse or an untrained mule. Because it needs a bit and a bridle to to even stay near you. No, don't be like that. Be changed and transformed. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Cast yourself upon Christ. Cast yourself upon a God who saves. Cast yourself upon anything but your own strength. Because in Jesus, the steadfast love of God surrounds us. And the last thing, and I think this is critical. I think this is, in, I think this is monstrously, monstrously important. Why do we come here every single week and sing songs? Is it just for fun? 
I hope that you come and you sing songs not because it's fun. I hope that you come and you sing songs because you are so overwhelmed with the fact that you, a sinner, are saved by the almighty God of the universe. And the only response that you can give, the only thing that you have in response to this is is absolute, utter praise and worship of the God who saved you. He says, be glad in the Lord. Be happy that you are redeemed. Be happy that you, a sinner, are saved. And rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Praise God that this room is full of sinners. Praise God that this room is full of sinners who have been covered by the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Praise God. If you are not covered by the blood of Christ, I plead with you again to cast yourself upon him. For with arms open wide, which I don't think was accidental, that the cross looks like Jesus reaching out to embrace you, a sinner. Cast yourself into the arms of the saving Christ Jesus and be glad in it. Let's pray. God, we have nothing else to offer you. Not our goodness, not our own righteousness. All we have is our feeble attempts to follow after you. Our feeble attempts to sing praises and glory to your name. God, we praise you and are glad that you have redeemed us. You have saved us. You have taken your our transgressions, our sins, and our iniquity, and you have scattered them as far as the east is from the west, Lord. An incalculable divide. We are no longer looked looked at by you as broken sinners, but as beloved children. We praise your name.